Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. It's me a great pleasure today to welcome Mikey Robbins. Mikey Robbins is one of Australia's uh, most well-known comedians and broadcasters. He spent seven years as the host of Triple J's National Breakfast Show before appearing as team leader on the Smash hit TV series Good News Week. He's written for the Taily Telegraph, Men's Style, co-authored a number of books, The Three Beers and a Chinese Meal with Helen Razor and so on. He now lives in Sydney and his most recently just published book uh, is Reprehensible, Polite Histories of Bad Behaviour. Uh, it's uh, published by Simon & Schuster, August this year, twenty nine ninety nine original paperback. Welcome to Viewpoints, Mikey Robbins. Lovely to talk to you, Henry. Uh, congratulations on your career to date, Mikey. I'm sure there's so much more to go. You've brought a lot of uh, pleasure and enjoyment to many people, myself included. And uh, oh. Mate, when I look back, all I can say is I haven't had a real job since 1989. So what was your job before 89 that you considered to be a real job? Because you were born oh. in 61. I was a dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like every struggling young comedian, I, I've washed my fair share of dishes. Did you? I do them at home when the dishwasher's broken. I don't get paid for them. I just stay on the right side of my wife. Oh, yes. Well, and so you should, Henry. So you should. <laughs> so I should. Uh, before we get into the book, um, just something that there's so many things uh, that one could pluck from um, your your repertoire of experiences, Mikey, but I just thought I'd pick out the 2013 time when at the Sydney Entertainment Centre you emceed for the Dalai Lama. Uh, tell us a bit about that amazing. experience. My, my favourite moment was um, the last part of, of the Dalai Lama's appearance was him and I on stage. And I was um, reading out questions people had emailed in. And a question came through from a 15-year-old um, boy, actually, on the Gold Coast. And it was, what's the difference between happiness and pleasure? The Dalai Lama thought for a second and he went, I have a friend in America, very important man. He likes to drink for pleasure. He drinks, drinks, drinks that's made him sick. He's, his pursuit of pleasure has cost him his happiness. And I said, your holiness, you sound a bit like uh, my doctor. He <laughs> paused a second. Oh, no, Mikey, if I was your physician, I would say, lunch, good. Dinner, not so much. <laughs> How did you find the man? He was, you know what, Henry, I'm not a spiritual person. I was no. born a Catholic. But at the end, he put one of those white scarves around my neck, and I did feel a shot of electricity run through my body. Really? You know, mind you, there were 12,500 people watching, so I could just been that. <laughs> now, now, now uh, uh, there's some oxymorons, I, I think, floating around this book. Uh, it starts with the word polite history of bad behaviour. You go to some length there, Mikey, to explain that perhaps your definition of polite doesn't quite match with that no, of others, and you almost give people a warning. Explain that. <laughs> well, the idea is that, you know, as I say in the foreword, my you know my area of interest is the serial scoundrel, not the serial murder murderer. So when I say polite, what I'm meaning is that um, there's a fair amount of sex in the book, uh, but there's not a lot of gore and and, and killing. <laughs> and so that's my version of polite. And I, I'm I'm willing to admit my version, my definition of polite might not be everyone's definition of polite. That's why I also say in the foreword that you should approach it if you are of a you know delicate sensibilities. You should approach the book like you would a spa bath in a hotel you've never stayed at before. Just dip in and out before you get you get yourself completely wet. <laughs> which 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 actually leads to that first chapter you've got the the problem of power. Um, 
fear of change. <laughs> and uh, dip in slowly before you get used to it. The fear of change, um, I mean, it's a very serious topic because I think we're all struggling with COVID-19 right now. And yeah, part yeah. of that, I know, in schools is um, is getting used to the new norm. But your chapter on problem of power, you might like to tell us a bit about that. Dip, let's just well, let our listeners dip into it. Well, I, I, I look at how particularly like yeah, the patriarchy was very resistant to changes with, uh, with, with women's issues in the late part of the 19th and early 20th century. And this is best manifested by the fact that women were riding bicycles, which apparently the old men didn't like. So rather than ban them riding bicycles, they came up with a, a fake disease called bicycle face. And there were these articles printed in all these medical magazines that how overexertion on a bicycle would give a woman's face a hard and unpleasant expression with bulging eyes. And um, so I, I also look at people who wielded power like and their various peculiarities, like the fact that Washington, you know, the great general and founder of America, may have been absolutely fearless on the battlefield, but he was actually terrified of his own mother. F- fascinating contradiction. You talk about the Civil War there too. That's got some relevance to um, that you, chapter. Uh, Ulysses Grant, probably, you know, the defining general along with Robert E. Lee of the Civil War, um, a not a, not a good president, a great memoirist. His, his, his memoirs are fantastic. But he was what is known as a gymnophobe, which means a never-nude. He, he actually bragged that um, not his physician, his nurses, his fellow soldiers, or even his wife had ever seen him naked, which is a particularly odd little uh, peccadillo. What was amazing about, about Grant, too, was even though he oversaw some of the most bloody battles in American history, he couldn't stand his meat being cooked rare. He couldn't stand the sight of blood in his steak. And he also had to, he never ate chicken because he refused to eat any animal that went around on two legs. Mm. It's, it's fascinating, the contradictions. Now, someone who doesn't appear in there, but you could juxtapose this character. Uh, if you had another chapter to write, what would you write about uh, with, this, with this in mind, um, Mikey? Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> Cromwell, yes, a, a, a very unusual man. One of my one of my favourites um, uh, was it was actually my first book where I wrote about food, and uh, there, there used to be a, a toast amongst uh, the, the people who are who were not followers of, of Cromwell during Cromwell's reign, and they would raise a glass, take a bite of bread, and they would say, "Send this Cromwell down." <laughs> <laughs> he, he did. He did end up on a sticky end of his life, didn't he? Yes, yes, yes. Well, that's that, that's actually a bit of a reoccurring theme in my book. Actually, how many of these sort of wayward and bizarre leaders end up having a sticky end? Mm, yes, yes, yes. They do. Um, I know. I was in Italy, and um, Mussolini came to quite a, oh, a gruesome well, ending, was, didn't he? Upside down. Was, yeah, that was. Um, in fact, that was. They still maintain that's the reason why Hitler took his own life. In the bunker, because he, he, he saw what the um, the Italians had done to Mussolini in the street. Absolutely. Uh, now, when you came to put this book together, um, it leads to another thing, uh, and congratulations, because it'll be a great teaching book. It, it made me think about all the people who were not in your book. Uh, the task of who you put in a book and not have it as an encyclopedia, Mikey. How did you well, Joe, I'm, do I'm that? Glad, I'm glad you said that, Henry. And what what I call it, with the book, with the research, I call it the Tiberius Factor. And here's a simple way of doing it. I, when I, was, I started off and I was researching Tiberius. He was known for his orgies and all that sort of stuff. I was, I was thinking, well, Tiberius could be a 
good factor, a you know, good character of the book. But then as I researched him further, I realized that Tiberius was actually far more criminally perverted than I could ever imagine. And so I took him out. And so as I went through the book, because the, the, the idea is to entertain people, tell them something I don't know. But also, too, I don't want to, you know, basically end up in Tiberius land, dare I say. So, the, so, so there are a lot of people who, when I started them, I actually dug into the history. I went, no, you're just too awful to go in. So so where does, and it's an interesting one because charisma comes into this too, um, and I was having a chat the other day with people about uh, charismatic people getting a bit more licence. Where does scoundrel begin and blackguard? Yeah, well, really, I, I, I say in the book, just, I, I think the thing with a scoundrel on the road, the way you look at them, and this is the thing that separates them from the, you know, from the, often they are criminal, don't get me wrong, but when you look at a scoundrel, you do have a slight begrudging sense of respect. Or as the words, I say in the book, or in the words of Maxwell Smart, it's only they mm. use their talents for good instead of evil. Um, so, yes, I mean, like uh, Gregor McGregor, the guy who set up a fake country in South America and then sold people citizenship in that country. Dreadful man, but you sort of go, well, you've got to give him marks for trying. Well, the fact that I actually found out when I was researching, it's in the book as well, that, you know, the old joke, if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. Well, actually, for decades, people did try and sell the Brooklyn Bridge to unsuspecting tourists in New York. You're right. I remember my father. We were not particularly wealthy um, people, and my father came home. My father was uh, a person with high tertiary qualifications and a very intelligent man. He came home one day, and he proudly put on the table back in the 60s. I remember as a young kid, uh, Mikey, he put this certificate, and my mum, who was a far more practical person, said, what's that? He said, I've just spent, uh, I've just spent a pound, and I've bought a block of land on the moon. <laughs> No. <laughs> went down yeah. like a lead balloon. Well, I mean, I mean, and let's face it, there you go. How many Nigerian princes will be able to send you a million dollars if you send them $50,000? <laughs> you know, they still go on to this day. <laughs> and and the, the other thing I talk about, you know, when it comes to scammers and scoundrels is they quite often really, um, they appeal to a very primal need within people. And that can be greed or it can be um, a desire to, to communicate with, with uh, dead loved ones, or quite often, more than not, erectile dysfunction. Mm. Mm. Yes, the word vicarious springs to mind. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> we need to take a short break, Mikey. Can you hold the line? Of course, mate. Welcome back to Viewpoints Listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. I'm going to have a discussion with Mikey Robbins, author of Reprehensible Polite Histories of Bad Behaviour. That's just been published by Simon & Schuster. It's out for $29.99. Welcome back, Mikey. Nice to be talking to you, mate. Mikey, before the break, we were talking about power and the difference between scoundrels, rogues and blackguards mm -hmm. and villains. And uh, I came to another chapter there and I thought, ooh... I wonder, and I thought, will I put this question in or not? Would this person oh, okay. make the book? But I've decided uh, 
in an avant-garde way to embrace your your approach, so I will. Under the heading okay. of royal scandals, you you start with a conversation about Harry and Meghan and how mm-hmm. the latest news is they're trying to escape the spotlight and the glare of the royal royal life. And you talk about it, quite a few people there. If you'd written this book in 2021, would Prince Andrew have featured? That's really interesting. Actually, I actually touch on the on the topic of, of Prince Andrew. And what I, what I say is, look, quite frankly, for those of you expecting to write about Andrew, I can't think of anything more embarrassing or disgusting than that ridiculous interview he did for the BBC. Mm. And I just, I, just, I just left it there. Once again... Well, quite frankly, what Prince Andrew has been accused of was also what Tiberius was accused of, and that whole sex with children thing or young young, younger people. I find I find there's nothing humorous in that. There's nothing edifying in that. So that's why I I, I would have left Prince Andrew out. But I felt I needed to mention him in passing. Mm, a good point. Now, under feuds, fights, and insults, I love that one, and it it brought to mind so many great. Uh, I, I tend to read more Western writers, English writers. It it brought to mind Oscar Wilde. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> he's uh, there's something charismatic and something about him that uh, it's the sort of book he could have written, isn't it? Well, thank you. I I, I still love the, the image of it. It's supposed to be Oscar Wilde's final words where he's dying in a bedroom in Paris, he looks at the wallpaper and goes, says, one of us has to go. <laughs> yes, and I had the honour of uh, going to that cemetery in Paris one time on a trip, and uh, he certainly, yeah, with yeah. his wings, has the most magnificent mausoleum there, doesn't he? Yes, and the, it always reminds me of a couple of years ago, I was in Rome with my wife, and um, there's a plaque in one of the, in one of the rooms in, in the you know, on the Spanish Steps that says on a certain date, um, the poet uh, Keats died here. I thought, well, that must have been awful for him when he checked in and saw that. <laughs> you, you could almost have used one of his well-known quotes in your foreword, I can resist everything except temptation. Yes. Well, and, and my, you have to remember, too, that, that Wilde was a, was a, was a wit in, in the same uh, way, in, in the tradition of, of someone else I write about in the book, which is Bo Brummel, who was the first sort of, dandy, the, the epitome of men's fashion, but he was also known for his dreadfully cutting wit. Mm. In fact, his wit was so cutting, it cut him out of high society in the end. Yes, there's a balance there. Well, you've certainly not crossed that line. Um, before we talk about insults and uh, feuds, uh, what's the greatest insult you consider that's been uh, directed in your direction? <laughs> if any, Mikey. Oh, many, many years, <laughs> many years ago, you know, I, I, my weight goes up and down, and many, many years ago, the when we were in our 20s, we decided to have a toga party because we thought it would be fun. <laughs> and I turned up in, 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 in my duna cover and, uh, and a friend said, nice toga. And I went, well, it's, um, it's just my duna cover. And he said, well, you're supposed to take the duna out. <laughs> <laughs> you should have asked that person for a paragraph in your book. Although <laughs> uh, you know, that was, it was probably... It was, came at me so quick. It was a good one. Um, getting, moving on <laughs> in that theme. In Roman times, it was almost like an art, art form in, 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 in the way they insulted, and you, you couldn't help but mention the poet Marshall. Tell us why. Well, yes, it's funny. I, I, you know, I, I think I actually say I wish they'd have taught this when I did Latin, because I think I'm the last public school year that went through doing Latin. And Marshall's epigrams are absolutely 
disgusting. They're filthy and <laughs> ribald and insulting. And as such, I love using them. I, I, I think I make the point in the book that hearing that if in, in ancient times, if you heard that Marshall was writing an epigram about you, the modern equivalent would be like someone saying Ronan Keating from the New Yorker is writing a piece about you. <laughs> it, there's something clever about all that that's so appealing too, isn't it? Oh, you know, there's, there's something wonderful about really vulgar swearing when it's done in Latin. <laughs> Yes, it is. It is. I can remember many, many years ago when I was young, I had a uh, a roguish friend. I used to sometimes hang out with those. And um, we, we were of um, Germanic background. So Ooh. our parents were my, well, and Polish, Polish German, uh, I was. But anyway, we spoke uh, German. So um, my mate, who was, was a bit of a rogue, would go into shops and uh, there's a common thing in Germany you say Danke Schein, which means thank you. Mm-hmm. He'd always say Danke Schwein, <laughs> which is thanks, oh. and people would nod their heads and smile, and we would go out thinking, wow, that was really good. Uh, it affected me to the point where I once introduced myself to mum and dad's uh, friends who were Australian, and I said, Danke Schwein, when they said something to me, and I got a clip on the ear from my father, of course, he could understand German, but there's something about that. What's what, what's the thing you love doing most to, to get oh, a laugh at someone's one expense? One of my stories was many years ago, my wife and I were in Hong Kong, and, and Laura had actually spent her childhood in Hong Kong. And I was arguing with a cab driver, and Laura suddenly spat out a, a, a word in, in, um, in, 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 in the local dialect. And the cab driver shut up and took us to the hotel. And I said, um, I said what did you say to him? And Laura said, well, actually, I can't really say. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, she swore at him pretty foul. Yep. And I went, well, I said, well, I didn't know you spoke that much. She said, no, she said, no all I've got that and I can count to 10. <laughs> it's, it's amazing what we remember. Um, uh, now, quirks of geniuses, they often tend to be our heroes. Why is that, um, Mikey? Well, well, you know, they are, you know, we find, you know, something to admire in, in their intellect, in their, the way they change the world. But then sometimes their personal lives don't quite live up to their achievements, um, which, which, quite frankly, is, is a thread that runs through human history. I mean, um, I'll give you an example of Sir Isaac Newton, probably, you know, the embodiment of the, of the intellectual mind of the age of the Enlightenment. Also a alchemist, a misogynist, probably dried a virgin, and was a deeply disturbed teenager. It, it, it's amazing how we, we, we do that. I, I thought uh, when you mentioned Einstein, uh, when you mentioned Newton and science, uh, uh, it made me think of some of the behaviours that have been recorded about Einstein. He wasn't the kindest of men to, to particularly his family. No, no, no. I mean, that, 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 that tends to be the case. And, and Einstein, I'm sorry, Newton was dreadful to his family. In fact, um, I, I, I listened. I, he, he made a, in his diary about he made a list of his sins over a certain period of months, um, and I list them in the book. And like the, a lot of it was just sort of blasphemy and the usual stuff. But then in the middle goes, wishing my house burned down with my parents in it, <laughs> and, and, and then later confessing to lying about the fact that he owned a crossbow. This kid's a bit odd. It does. It just shows you that we're all, doesn't it? We're all capable yeah. of everything. I think. I think reading the book it made me think of myself not so badly. <laughs> well, you know what? I actually was. I was talking to someone the other day, and they, they described this book as sort of like a historical version of watching the Kardashians. Whereas, like, you can read it and go, you know, I, I'm bad, but I'm not H. G. Wells bad. 
That's exactly how I felt when I read it. Oh, look, well, in that case, the book has done its job, Henry. Now, now I reckon this book has got many, many parts. I think you're a little modest. Um, Matt Kine, who said, if they taught history like this in school, I wouldn't have failed. I, th- I think you should be peddling this book to some of our um, psychoanalysts and psychiatrists and psychologists. I think yeah, this oh, is you know the what? sort of book... I, yeah, about... I do that, but I have to find out what they think about me. <laughs> Uh, look, it's been a real pleasure, Mikey. The the time has gone by too quickly, and uh, it's a great book. It's a great read. Do you know the other thing about it? I think um, it's a timely time to have a book like this out because it it's actually very uplifting, and we all need a bit of that these days. So thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, mate. Absolute pleasure talking to you. That was Mikey Robbins, um, uh, one of Australia's most well-known comedians and broadcasters. His new book, uh, Reprehensible Polite Histories of Bad Behaviour. Simon and Schuster, it's out now. If you want a bit of levity and learn something in the process, which is all good teaching too, listeners, grab it.